Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, and America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. It's been a year since the COVID-19 pandemic first arrived in the Western Hemisphere, and vaccination efforts are now in full swing. Across the Americas, governments are working to procure and distribute vaccines as soon as humanly possible with varying levels of success. As vaccine production ramps up globally, countries are facing renewed urgency due to the spread of numerous and usually more contagious variants. We thought it was a good time to reassess the situation in the Americas, and that's what our roundtable is going to do today. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gaudet. Hey, John. Hi, Benjamin. Also, Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John. Welcome back, Ricardo. And also, welcome Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Hello, Cindy. Also joining us, Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. And the Director of the Canada Institute, Chris Sands, is back. Hey, Chris. Hi, John. Let's jump right in. Ricardo, I want to begin with you and ask you about the circumstance in Brazil, because uh, beyond any discussion of the addressing of the pandemic at large, Brazil continues to stand out both with the, the variant and all the bad things that are happening. And then President Bolsonaro, again, taking this sort of tough love approach and saying people need to stop whining about COVID-19. Tell us what's happening. Well, it, it, it's actually a pretty horrific situation in Brazil right now where the variant so many people around the world are talking about as one of enormous concern because it's so transmissible and there are indications it's possibly reinfecting uh, people who've had another variant in the past. The fact is it's a very difficult time and particularly in some major urban centers where you're seeing a resurgence of uh, cases, there's a certain amount of demoralization as well because while Brazil has begun its vaccination program and we're starting to see by, you know, compared to some of the other countries in the region, their percentages are, are growing in comparison to others. The reality is you're still talking about the majority of the country having no access to vaccines for the foreseeable future, certainly through the end of 2021. And so that has created a, an enormous level of, of uh, concern in the population. Uh, we see it now that's 265,000 dead uh, Brazilians are still immediately behind the United States in terms of overall deaths. Uh, and what seems like dips in the in uh, uh, the past few months have unfortunately been um, just episodic. And what we're seeing is that it is uh, continuing to have an impact on the economy uh, and continuing to have an impact on, on social and political issues. If an election were held today, how would Mr. Bolsonaro do? Well, that's hard to say. And we can we can talk about that as well. The reality is that there are many mixed views in Brazil about the measures that were taken to slow down the economy, and there was a lot of support for him keeping the economy open, among, particularly among people who have to work for a living. They don't have any uh, savings, nor do they have uh, any kind of uh, safety net. And so it is a complex uh, set of support. I will say this, 80% of Brazilians would take the vaccine if they could today. And the fact that uh, any kind of downplaying of that certainly plays badly with a, a 
significant percentage of the population that feels that they, they should have this vaccine. Cindy, the, we, we talk about borders and we talk about states, uh, but the coronavirus doesn't recognize borders. This isn't something that can just be addressed in one country. So what, what's going on around the region? Are there concerns about the varying approaches to addressing the pandemic? It's a great question, John. And I think it, um, the, the responses reflect um, the fact that every country has been out on its own. Um, it's only recently that COVAX, the facility under the World Health Organization, has started to actually give people um, vaccines through um, its, uh, its facility. Um, and countries have a lot, there, there's just a huge variation um, in where countries have gone, in how forward-looking they were in contracting with different drug companies and different governments to acquire vaccines, and then the capacity to actually administer them through the health system. So you have, you know, Chile as the, as the front runner and the countries like Guatemala and Honduras, you know, that um, typically lag in all of the other social indicators that are really, you know, at the bottom. And, you know, there's lots of explanations for that, but it does go to the fact that um, countries were really not very coordinated despite the efforts of the Pan American Health Organization and uh, everyone was out on its own and the differences are reflected in um, all of the other ways that those countries are differentiated as well. Benjamin, if someone were looking for leadership in regard to pandemic response in the Americas, where should they look? Beyond any you know, one's imagination, Chile has been extraordinarily successful in its efforts to vaccinate its population. Now, this is not successful relative to the, the global leaders. Israel has given a dose to almost you know, over 90% of Israelis. The United Kingdom has given vaccines to over a third of the population in the United States, more than 20%. But for the Latin America standard, Chile's really been spectacular. It's nearing a quarter of the population. You know, the next closest country in the region is, is Brazil, and that's less than 5%. I think, though, what you're seeing broadly in the region is understandable frustration, though, with a lack of access to vaccines, and that's including among governments. I mean, just a few days ago, Alberto Fernandez, the president of Argentina, in his State of the Union, complained that 90% of all vaccines are in the hands of 10% of countries um, and made you know, what was really a moral argument about the injustice of that. I should mention now that... Uh Andrew Rudman and the Mexico Institute have a terrific infographic to share for people who are looking at distribution in, in North America and in the Americas. Uh, Andrew, could you tell us about that? Sure. Thanks, John. So what we tried to do in this infographic is, is really compare and contrast uh, Canada, Mexico, and the United States in, in some different ways. So, for example, we focus on the percentage of vaccine, available vaccines that have been distributed which to some extent uh, levels the playing field because obviously the U.S. we have more vaccines, but the question really was more about what each country has or actually getting into arms. And then we also look, for example, at what percentage of the population has received uh, two shots. And you can see uh, we'll be updating this again shortly, but at the moment uh, the U.S. is at about 8% with two shots, Canada is at one and a half, and Mexico only at half a percent. Uh, and again, that's an effort to kind of look uh, look at at uh, compare the numbers that are really apple to apple comparison. Uh, Chris, you know the, the Canada numbers are surprisingly low. What's happening with vaccine distribution in Canada? Well, it's a challenging situation for the government. Um, 
Canada tried to get ahead uh, of the vaccine crisis, and to date they've ordered 404 million doses for a population of just 38 million people, roughly. So they, they've been prepared. The problem is that many of those are on back order. And while the federal government is responsible for first procuring and then providing the approval for different vaccines, it's the provinces that are in charge of actually putting the shot in people's arms because the provinces control the healthcare system at the local level. So you get these huge variations. Some small provinces like Saskatchewan and Prince Edward Island are ahead of the national average. But then big provinces that really matter, uh, Ontario, British Columbia, Alberta, are significantly behind. Overall, they have about 5% of the population that has received at least one dose. But when you look at this infographic and the data, uh, you for two doses, you're talking about something close to 1.5% of the population. And particularly because Canadians look south of the border at the U.S. or look to Britain as a model, this is really becoming a political pressure point for the Trudeau government. Uh, people expect better, and they just haven't gotten it. But it's not because they haven't prepared. It's just because of the difficulty of logistically getting this done and getting the orders delivered. Cindy, what, what is Chile doing right? Well, first of all, I would just like to add to what Benjamin said that, you know, Chile is not just um, doing, you know, an, an extraordinary job by Latin American standards. I think it's number five or six in the world in terms of the percentage of its population that has been vaccinated and the number of vaccines that it's procured. I mean, one of the things that Chile really has going for it is the diversity of supply, but the bulk of the vaccines that it has received come from China. And Chile, along with Peru and Uruguay and other countries, have long had China as their number one trading partner, mostly exports of copper. Um, but as a result, there's a longstanding and very positive relationship with China. And Sinovac um, has been the, the major supplier of vaccines to Chile. And Chile participated in clinical trials with Sinovac as well. So I think that um, helps explain a lot of it, but it also just diversified um, enormously in a way that other countries didn't. But, but I do think that the, the Sinovac vaccine has a lot to, to do with the success story in Chile. Benjamin. It's true. I mean, I think these sorts of bilateral arrangements that Cindy's describing, the reason they're necessary is this WHO program, which is wonderful conceptually, the COVAX program, just isn't providing vaccines fast enough and not nearly at the scale that's needed. Even if it meets its ambition, it's looking to vaccinate only 20% of the population in participating countries when we know 65, 70% might need to be vaccinated for this so-called herd immunity to be reached. For that reason, you know, everyone is scrambling around and competing with one another to make these individual deals for vaccines. And also for that reason, the United States really needs to step up once we hope as, as soon as May, there's surplus vaccine being produced in the United States. Andrew Rudman, this notion about how quickly vaccines are approved, again, it seems to be almost every man for himself, even within the EU, where the notion would suggest that there be some coordination, there is disputes among the member countries? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question, John. And, and one of the things that strikes me that, that uh, ought to happen more is more coordination and cooperation among regulatory agencies uh, across the hemisphere. Uh, you know, the FDA, for example, used the emergency use authorization process to quickly approve vaccines. Ideally, other countries in the hemisphere would feel comfortable relying on an FDA decision 
conceivably by participating to some extent, if not in making the decision for the FDA, but having a really good understanding of how the FDA made the decision so that one of the challenges that you could overcome is that we were just chatting before about how different countries have approved different vaccines. At least in theory, if FDA and Health Canada and perhaps on Visa or Cofacrease have approved the vaccine, probably ought to be good enough for everybody in the hemisphere. And that wouldn't address distribution challenges, but it would at least, at least broaden the number of available vaccines. Chris Hans. Well, and, and this is one thing that Canada has been uh, really banging on about. Yes, they have 404 million doses on order, but obviously they don't need that much. What they're hoping to do is put whatever they've ordered into the COVAX pool uh, once they've got their population vaccinated. And so that if other countries follow the Canadian model, wealthy countries over ordering and then putting surplus into the pool, you could see you know a real rapid progress. And hopefully the COVAX facility will be ready to take that flow when it starts heading their way and get it to the people who need it. You know, we live in a world where uh, immediate gratification is often a click away, and so patience is at a premium. I'm wondering for your thoughts uh, across from all of you on where, where are we in the current timeline of this crisis? Uh, you see within the United States, individual states who are ready to behave as if it's over and the pandemic is in the rearview mirror, but then you hear these cautionary tales like where we began with Ricardo's a discussion of what's happening in Brazil, where we're looking at variants and a spike and, and things beginning to go in the in the wrong direction. Do you have any sense of, is this just this sort of quagmire where we're in a chronic stage that could go on for another year, two, three? Where are we on the, on the arc of time as we take a look at this crisis? Well, first of all, we're not certain because by definition, we don't know what variants are going to emerge. The whole purpose of this effort across the globe is to limit the opportunity for, for this virus to adapt to something that's even more dangerous and more transmissible than what we've seen. Uh, and what we can see is that even in very small populations, you can have enough variation to have these uh, uh, new strains come out that are that are so problematic. And so that is the whole logic behind um, a, 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 a mass effort at, at a global level. It does appear that because we have... Uh, First of all, there are these distribution issues. Uh, we do know that more and more will come online. Uh, as Chris said, there will be, in some cases, uh, doses that are on order that can be uh, that can be used in, in other locations. Um, the industrial process clearly has ramped up, including because they, they have to look ahead at the possibility of having to inoculate for future variants in future years. So you see a stream of, of production having to take place over time and not just as a one-off. But I do think that we should be alarmed about the reality that in some places, like Nicaragua jumps out as one, Brazil to some extent jumps out as another, places where there has, uh, you could arguably say, um, this has been allowed to proceed without enough action on the part of governments uh, to limit the spread using available means and by actively encouraging things like mask wearing, social distancing, where that didn't happen. You have the danger of variants that exist to contaminate the rest of the population after everyone has done all of this work to, to tamp down the spread. So we're not out of the woods, I don't think, next year or the year after. It's a question of can we reduce the odds and the risk of having another major outbreak through 
uh, means that we're putting in place today. Cindy Arnson. Thanks. Yeah, I think the the slow rollout in Latin America is really, really troubling for a lot of reasons. I mean, we've seen that uh, this is the region of the world where um, the number of deaths relative to the population is absolutely the highest. Um, it's the country, it's the region of the world that's done the worst economically as a result of the pandemic. And whereas, you know, the IMF in previous conversations we've had with Alejandro Werner and, 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 uh, um, and other colleagues, they predict that growth will rebound by something like 4%. Um, I'm not sure how that squares with the data that we've seen thus far on how quickly the vaccine is getting around um, in Latin America. There are still tremendous problems um, in, um, in acquiring the vaccine, in getting it at an affordable price, and with clauses in the purchasing from private companies that are acceptable and, and spread the risk, uh, you know, accordingly. Um, and, you know, it just is really hard to see how, quite apart from the public health implications, um, you know, countries economically are going to be able to get back on their feet until this is brought under control. Um, it is hopeful, in my view, that uh, the Biden administration has committed $4 billion to the COVAX facility, um, even if you know the United States is not donating vaccines until the U.S. population is vaccinated, there's a simultaneous effort to provide funding um, to that organization to help make it available around the world. So um, I guess there's uh, good news, bad news, troubling news, uh, but great cause for concern. Andrew Rudman. I was just going to follow up on, on what Cindy said. I, I think one of the one of the lessons of this pandemic, and of, as she said, the poor response is is the weak health infrastructure across the region. The, the fact is, you know, their vaccines have been wasted because there wasn't adequate cold storage facilities. Um, there are, you know, obviously lots of people all over the region who don't really have access to health care. And while a vaccine is is just one. One moment in time, if you will, it, it just underscores how important it is for countries to invest more in healthcare. At the risk of being immodest, I think one of the bragging points for the Wilson Center has been that we're not just following headlines, but we're also keeping an eye on trend lines and often out in front in, in, in talking about those. With the time remaining, if I could have maybe a minute from each of you to quickly talk about what trend lines you're keeping an eye on that may have either been revealed by the pandemic or are, you know, a low buzz that's been there before the pandemic and will continue afterwards. What are some of the things that, that you're following? Chris Sands, can we begin with you? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things I've been encouraged by is that we've seen a reduction in the number of deaths. Um, on the diagnosis, we're finding more case, but we're finding more cases still. We we don't have the death numbers. That's the key to I think hitting a prevalence rate balance where you could start opening up the Canada-US border again or or making other changes. I think after a year, and we're about a year out from the first death from COVID in Canada. People are impatient to at least see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I think as much as possible, I'm looking for those early signals that at least in Canada and the U.S., we can get back to some kind of normal. Benjamin. 
think, unfortunately, we're, we're well beyond any rally around the flag effect in Latin America. And instead, as this thing grinds on, the angst in the region that caused all of that social protest in 2019 is really coming back. And it's worsened not only by the economic damage that Cindy mentioned and the, the public health crisis, but also a lot of the corruption that we've seen worsened by the pandemic. Now in the vaccination phase, we're seeing even new scandals where you have VIPs in Peru, Argentina, and elsewhere getting special access to vaccines. All of it just, you know, gives, again, fuel to the fire of a region that is a lot of discomfort with traditional parties and with incumbents and creates lots of uh, opportunities for outsiders to make mischief in, in the elections this year and next. Ricardo. Well, I have to say that is also what I'm tracking, the political impact of this, as you see, um, particularly in terms of government capacity, which was always, uh, and, and particularly in recent years, the real source of social friction, that government simply could not deliver basic needs on education, security, uh, justice, uh, and, and health, more than anything else health, as we covered previously in the Wilson Center, how the fault lines that existed before this were exacerbated by the crisis. And I think what you're going to see is this will be burned into public's consciousness for at least the next uh, 10 years or so as a decisive episode in just show where all those fractures were in their governments, political classes, and, and economy. Cindy? Yeah, I can't remember who it was that said, you know, you should never uh, waste the opportunity provided by a good crisis. And my my concern is that all of these gaping um, um, gaps and deficiencies in public health systems, as Andrew was saying a moment ago, um, have, have been revealed by the pandemic, um, that the steps needed, uh, that the steps needed to really repair that health system, make it better, make it more responsive, make it more universal, won't really be taken. Um, countries are going to come out of this crisis with massive amounts of debt overhang, with really limited fiscal space, um, and the ability to kind of embark on broad reforms and, and invest in them um, is going to be really, really uh, problematic. So I, um, looking ahead, uh, remain skeptical, hopeful, but but still skeptical that the kind of wake-up call that this should have provided to everybody will be heeded and, and really responded to. Thanks, Cindy. And Andrew, you get the final word on this notion of trend lines. And I think uh, I, I mentioned, I, I think, two trends, John. One is uh, relates more to the U.S.-Mexico relationship and to the border region, picking up on what Chris said, that uh, as the U.S. Uh, vaccination rate increases and we get to a point where we're starting to go back to normal and certainly in some border states they're pushing to lift all the restrictions very quickly you're going to have differences between vaccination rates and approaches uh, on either side of the border and that's going to create strain as people want to start crossing the border and going back to normal uh, i think the other trend sort of Stepping out one one step is is how does north america respond and learn from the lessons and what can be done going forward to ensure that the next time there's a pandemic, North America has more of a coordinated response because this time, with the exception of ultimately agreement on border closures, it really was three countries running in their own in their own direction. Thanks, thanks, Andrew. Before we close, uh, I want to go back to Ricardo to uh, shift gears a bit beyond the pandemic and talk about the changing political winds in Brazil. Uh, some breaking news. 
within the 24 hours that we're recording this episode, a Supreme Court ruling on former President Lula, which uh, potentially makes him a presidential candidate the next time around. Ricardo, can you tell us what's happening and what it might indicate for the future of Brazil's politics at the presidential level? Sure. So this, by the way, by the time this airs, you may have had a couple of different rounds in the this court's going to rule case, again, right? correct? So, so, it, yeah. so, so there's a very good chance that this will be um, uh, appealed. Uh, that this ruling will be appealed by the prosecutors. Essentially, what it boiled down to was that a um, a, uh, a justice decided that uh, the case against Lula had to be vacated essentially on jurisdictional grounds, that because Judge Moro had been operating from one state as a federal judge for Brazil, he couldn't render decisions in a separate jurisdiction. And the interesting thing about this is this may have helped President Bolsonaro, former President Lula, and Judge Moro himself, because there was a good chance uh, that had the case proceeded, and it still may, uh, that it could have also resulted in charges against Judge Moro for allegedly pursuing this case on biased grounds. And so there was the potential of a case against him. Why do I say it helps uh, President Bolsonaro and former President Lula? In a sense, they are each other's favorite candidate in a 2022 election. So each wants to run against the other. They see themselves as polar opposites. They see themselves as... Um, representing very clear strains, political strains in Brazil, and who loses? Uh, candidates in the middle, without the name recognition or the enormous power to draw voters that these others uh, produce. So stay tuned. Uh, this could this could uh, loop around a couple of times. But one last bit, it also opens the possibility that if there's going to be no case against Judge Moro, that he could be a third candidate. So you could have the three people most impacted by this ruling end up as presidential candidates in 2022. Thanks, Ricardo. Thanks, everybody. Cindy, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, thanks for your thoughts on the pandemic. We look forward to learning more from all of you in future episodes. On Till Then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.